Well, friends, let me give my welcome to you being here this morning in worship, whether you're with us online or here in the sanctuary, it's just great to be together and to be able to look at God's word together. I'm Dave Bianchin, I'm on the pastoral staff here, and it's just a really uh, wonderful privilege for me to be with you here this morning. We are into our last of the nine sermons in our series called Credo, in which we are looking through the Apostles' Creed, and this is just a really wonderful time to be together. This is a wonderful um, sermon to preach. I, I told Pastor Dan today, it's great to get to preach an Easter sermon at the end of June. That's essentially what we're looking with today. Would you join with me in prayer before we move into the sermon itself? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your love for us that you have been pointing all of salvation history to draw us to yourself into a personal relationship with you and to lead us even beyond this life in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Lord, touch our hearts this morning. May my words and my thoughts be ones which help us along the way. May your Holy Spirit guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love the worship set that we do before the preacher gets up. Um, look forward to more of it in the service today. I have always just loved music. Music's been a part of my life from a very low, small age. My mother was a piano teacher for many, many years, finally gave it up at the early age of 94. But, um, so I've been part of music all the way through. And one of the things I love about music is the dynamic of it that not only works with lyrics, such as we sang this morning, but also just the music itself, because Music is in many ways really the language of the heart. And the music that we listen to and the music that we sing can grip us in such a way that it leads our hearts into wonderful new places. There's a musical term called crescendo. And a crescendo is something which takes the music and builds it toward an excitement and a climax and sometimes a volume. And you know the feeling, don't you? Just a great song that builds up and, and ends well. It just lifts you up, lifts you to some new and wonderful things. This sermon today, this particular text, this part of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the life everlasting, uh, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This is the crescendo of the creed. And it's a crescendo in a couple ways. In one way, it's a crescendo for us because it reminds us that we will live with Jesus in heaven as we live in a relationship with him today. But the other crescendo is that God has been working through this throughout history. All of salvation history is moved through the law and the prophets to the point where in the latter days, it says in Hebrews, God has sent us his son. So it's a culmination for us of receiving everlasting life. It's a culmination of God's intention for us that he would be able to offer that to us. It's the center of salvation history. When I was a kid, I had all kinds of different um, imaginations of what heaven might look like. Perhaps you did as well. And I find as I get closer and closer to that age, I find a few more things I'm thinking about you know, with that as I get older. But there were a couple things about my musings as a child that were noteworthy to me. They were good and they were bad. What was good was that I had an expectation that there was a life coming and that life might be available to me, though as a child I wasn't sure how that would happen. But the other was that God would bring us to himself and welcome us into his place. All of that was good. The bad side of my musings were that they only focused on a place. That was my frame of reference as a child. I was trying to imagine a place, whether it was a, a garden or a neighborhood or a city, and I was focused on what this place might be like apart from any other relational type of things. And I want to deal with that dynamic this morning, that heaven is a place because we will be resurrected into resurrection bodies, but heaven is most importantly 
a place where we culminate our relationship with God and live with God for eternity. Now, most of us have our own conceptions of heaven. Some of us think it more about it more than others. Some of us are too distracted by the lives that we live. Some of us are too comfortable, and we don't have a sense of expectation about what God might be doing for us later. Most visions of heaven, I think, are tailor-made to our own imaginations. And that's okay, God gave us the imaginations, but we wanna move toward this faithfulness in the relationship of who God is. Every one of the major religions addresses the question of what happens when we die. And it's varied according to many places around the globe. Buddhists believe that there are 31 different planes of existence. This human life that we live in right now is one of those planes of existence. But don't believe that there's a literal heaven or hell. Hindus focus upon the issue of karma, you've heard that phrase, in which people are resurrected, or not resurrected, are reborn into new lives, new lives until they finally reach perfection or nirvana. The Muslim faith believes that there's a literal garden that those who have been good get to inhabit if they've been faithful to Allah and if they've done good things. Now in the Christian faith, we've got some images in scripture of what heaven might look like but we focus first and foremost on being with Jesus and being in the presence of God. So whatever that might look like in our mind's eye, the most important thing is that we are going to be in a close face-to-face personal relationship with God. Now, the Bible speaks of resurrection in many different places, but I'd like to focus on a conversation that Jesus has with his good friend Martha. Let me give you the context for this. Jesus is a couple days away from a town called Bethany. And Bethany is where Mary and her sister Martha and their brother Lazarus live. And something happens to Lazarus along the way in which he, he becomes ill. And Jesus gets word that Lazarus is ill and that Lazarus is probably going to die. But rather than running right away, Jesus stays where he is and finally receives word that Lazarus has died, and only then do Jesus and his disciples make the trek to Bethany. And we pick up the scripture in chapter 11 of John's gospel at verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them over the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. So, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So what do we do with that? Well, the first thing we do since we're post-resurrection people is we go back to Jesus' death and resurrection and say, what happened? So we know that Jesus was in Jerusalem for Passover, that he was betrayed by Judas, that he was flogged so many times, 
and that he was nailed to a cross with two thieves, one on either side of him. We know that on that cross he died, and as they brought him down from the cross and certified that he was dead, he was taken to a tomb that was prepared for him. The stone was rolled over the tomb temporarily because it was the Sabbath, and so they couldn't go attend to his body. And so they, when they went on the third day, the stone had been rolled away. Mary and Martha and the women look inside the tomb, and Jesus is not there. There's an angel who says to them, he's not here, he's risen, he's gone ahead of you, and so they run back and they talk to the disciples. Peter and John have a foot race to the tomb and they find the same thing. And we find then that Jesus appears to people after that. The Apostle Paul summarizes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it's an important passage what we're talking about today, so uh, Remember that, and if you want to review any of the things we're talking about today, go back to 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul begins the chapter by saying these things. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. So the first thing we find out from this, this summary, and in observing what happens as we see it in the Gospels, is that Jesus died. He wasn't morphed into some sort of different spiritual being. In his humanity, like yours and mine, he died. It was certified that he was dead, and so they put him in a tomb. And scripture tells us then that God raised him from the dead. So the first thing we know is that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, and that's attested to by many witnesses and by others who were in Jerusalem. And the second thing we learn is that he rose for a purpose. Paul declares that he died and rose for our sins according to the scriptures. Now when Paul says that, he's looking back into the Old Testament, and he's remembering that God, through the Abrahamic covenant, and then through the Mosaic covenant, through the law and the prophets, God has been pointing to his people and saying, I want to be your God. I want to be your savior. And people have rejected God throughout the years. And as it says in Hebrews, in these latter days, God has sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But when Paul says according to the scriptures, what we learn is that God has been pointing to this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for this day when Jesus would rise from the dead, be raised by God, and be able to offer all of us, and even beyond those days then, a personal relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul goes on to say is that he rose in bodily form, that he wasn't some sort of apparition, that he was visible and appeared to many different people. It goes on to say 500 people or more after his resurrection. That he was touchable. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it unless I touch his hands. And Jesus says, go for it. And Thomas leans down and in faith says, my Lord and my God. But Jesus would have been touchable. He wouldn't have offered that if that were not true. And thirdly, Jesus was able to communicate to people according to the needs that they had at the time. You remember the story in Luke of the disciples that day who walked back from Jerusalem to Emmaus, not knowing that Jesus has risen from the dead. And Jesus talks with them and walks with them and lets them know that he is alive and he disappears from them and goes back to Jerusalem. So he rose in bodily form in such a way 
that he could communicate and relate to people who were there with him right then. So by his teaching, by his miracles, by his own resurrection, by the pointing together of all of salvation history, Jesus clearly taught that the body will be raised from the dead and that even though we die, yet shall we live. And the body will one day be raised by the power of God. So let's go back to that passage in 1 Corinthians and see how Paul describes it. I'm going to read verses 42 through 44. Paul writes, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So here's a description of what it means to be raised from the dead. That our bodies, which are perishable now, will be imperishable. They'll be eternal. I don't know about you, but the older I get, and I'm getting there, I miss my knees, I miss my eyes, I miss all these things that are disappearing from my health as I get older. Our new bodies won't be like that. They'll be eternal, imperishable. Spiritually, they'll be sinless instead of sinful. So we won't have to struggle with these thoughts and desires and practices and failures that we have had in this life. Our body will be glorified instead of dishonorable. It'll be powerful instead of weak or limited. It'll be spiritual rather than earthly. What a wonderful set of things that God has offered for us. That God is offering for us the opportunity through a relationship with Christ to be raised to eternal life. Paul says that our citizenship is, is in heaven and from that we await a savior and God will actually transform us into these glorified bodies. So it's clear from this teaching that we're not gonna be kind of subsumed in some sort of impersonal cloud, but we will be resurrected recognizable people. We'll go a little bit more for that in just a moment. And we will go and we will meet the Lord. So it's relational. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he says, whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. So the immediate context here, I I gave some information about some of the current world religions. Jesus would have been speaking to Greeks and Jews or people who would have been familiar with both Greek and Jewish um, theology. And the Greeks felt that the body was something that just wasn't very good, that we needed to get away from the body and be raised and morphed in some way into the spiritual heavens, but that we didn't really die, we just were transposed. (coughs) The Jews believed that that the resurrected body would be a literal body, that it would be the same body and that they would live then with God in a different sort of way. All the Jewish theology changed a little bit through the years, that's pretty much how it set. The early Christians believed, as we've just looked at, that there is a death, there is a resurrection, and there's a glorification of our bodies. But the most important thing we remember is death will still happen, but life is connected to him. Death is not the last word. And so life eternal is both in Christ, and it's with Christ, and it's also because of Christ. So we don't We're not raised from the dead on the basis of being good people. We're sinful human beings. Some of us do better than others, but none of us is perfect. None of us can say that we've never sinned or never failed or never done a bad thing, and that's just honesty. It's not looking down on ourselves. But resurrection is based upon that relationship 
that Jesus declares to Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. The best example of that for me through the years has been the thief on the cross. Remember, Jesus is crucified. There's a thief on, on his right and there's another on his left. And one of those thieves derides Jesus and just he's bad-mouthing him and things like this. And the other one says, don't you know who you're talking to? You're talking to the very son of God. You're talking to the one who, who's died for us. And Jesus looks to this second thief and he says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Now let me ask a question. Will that thief be in paradise because he's become a good person? Mm, hard to tell. Will he be with Jesus in paradise because he's been able to go down and make restitution for the bad things he did? Remember, he wasn't on the cross for doing something minor. He had done horrible things to somebody at some time. And so we can say that that thief is, in fact, still a bad person, but he has hitched his wagon to the Savior. He has said, I believe in you, Jesus. And Jesus says, because of that, not because of your goodness, you will be with me today in paradise. So what will heaven be like? Let me read a couple passages that, that give us a bit of a clue on some of this. The first is from John chapter 14. Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's just told them that he's going to die in Jerusalem and they are just beside themselves. They are so unsettled, the idea that Jesus would leave them, would go to be crucified. And Jesus says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I am going there to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus is saying there's a special place for us in heaven. It's, again, not some sort of impersonal cloud. When I preach this sermon, or rather when I preach this text at funerals, I like to remind people that, that their loved one has gone to a place where they are recognized, to a place where they are received for who they are in Christ. And there's in some way going to be some type of familiarity with this place that we go to. But the most important aspect of that is that Jesus has said, so that where I am, you may be also. So the most important thing Jesus teaches about heaven is not only will it be personal, but we will be with him. We will be with him then forever. And there's such comfort to me in knowing that. We don't go into this dark cosmos all alone. We go accompanied by the presence of Jesus who wants to be with us. There's a second text I want to read to you in the next to last chapter of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 21, just four verses, but it's the vision and the image that Jesus gives John of the new heaven and the new earth. And it's worth reading, really, um, the last chapter of chapters of Revelation to get it in fullness. But this is what we read here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with people and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So this great holy city, this place will be a place of worship. It'll be a place of peace. It'll be a place of joy. It'll be a place of living in the presence of God. So the images that Jesus gives us in John 14 and in Revelation 21 focus on being with him who is the light of the world, who is the resurrection and the life, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so the old and the painful and the confusing and the losses and the discomfort and the worry and the sin, those will be gone in the presence of God. I want to take a pause for a moment and, and make just a little different direction because in many ways this has been a doctrinal sermon so far and, and we wanted to do that. We wanted to think about that as an important doctrine of the Christian faith but I want to get personal for a moment here because some of us in this sanctuary or online are really hurting today. We are dying. We've received hard medical news. Someone we love is dying and has received that. We are confused we're in pain. We don't know if we have the strength to keep moving toward the life that is there for us each and every day. It's hard for us to imagine. What I want to remind us is that we can imagine as far as we can go, but beyond our imagination is a God who embraces us. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, which is usually shared at weddings rather than in texts such as this, is in 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul says, now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Think of the comfort of this, that when we can't see the way ahead, at least not clearly, the God who loves us is surrounding us and he's leading us forward in that because even though we see through a mirror dimly, God sees us clearly from heaven. The Holy Spirit sees us clearly as he reaches around to share with us. Only a reflection is in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face when we are embraced, when we know joy, when we are indeed home. My wife Julie and I have been married for 38, going on 39 years. Um, it's been a privilege to be married to her. I sometimes wonder why she said yes, but I don't like to remind her about that. Um, it's just a privilege. And we've lived in many places. We've lived in four different communities, at least two houses in each of those communities. And so we've raised three children together. And when I think about the concept of home, those places are in the backdrop. Those houses where we raised our kids or where we started our life together, um, those are in the backdrop, but home, home is that relationship I have with her. Home is that relationship I have with her and with our children. And that's the most important image for us of heaven, is that when we see dimly only, when we can't imagine what a place might be like, that we think about those who love us, about the God who loves us, and that is the overarching image for us. C.S. Lewis said that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that's the comfort of the gospel, that when it's hard to see, when life is difficult, God is still there wooing us 
surrounding us, inviting us. And that's why this last phrase of the Apostles' Creed is not just information. This is passion for us. This is salvation for us. The creed can be a dry theological statement, but it also can be this great declaration of the assurance and the expectation and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus is talking to Martha and he asks her first, she gives Jesus the kind of theological textbook answer about resurrection. And Jesus presses her when he says to her, do you believe this? I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, yet they die, will live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, you are the Christ, the one who's God, who God has sent into the world. Don Carson, Professor Don Carson says that Jesus' concern here in asking Martha this question is to divert her focus from an abstract belief in what takes place at the end of time to a personalized belief in himself who alone can provide it. Just before he went to the cross in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus gave us one more definition. He said, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Again, the connection is personal. Jesus has pressed Martha and he presses us as well beyond intellectual thoughts and opinions and arguments of what heaven might be like, beyond an impersonal view of heaven that doesn't include the relationship, beyond the trials and temptations and struggles of this life which make it hard to see it sometimes, Jesus says, do you believe this? Many years ago, someone made the statement, Christians who are too heavenly minded are no earthly good. Well, I wanna challenge that because I think that it is our blessed hope, it is our awareness of the final triumph in Christ that empowers us to be faithful disciples, that empowers us to be able to, to be generous, to step out in faith, to pray bold prayers, to look death in the eye, to endure when things are difficult. Our blessed hope empowers us to do this because we're reminded that the presence of God is not only here, but it is there to come for us, and that gives us hope. Samuel Johnson many years ago said, the natural flights of the human mind are not from pleasure to pleasure, but from hope to hope. So our expectation of resurrection and the life to come empower faithful discipleship, enable us to step out in faith, enable us to do the difficult things that God asks us to do today because we can do so with expectation. Another old saint from 100 years ago, Andrew Murray, said in one of his devotional books that he heard a sermon one day and he was given this picture. There was a kingdom in which there were many, many poor subjects and the king decided he wanted to create a city for those poor subjects and to provide for them. So he created the city and moved them all there and he put a storehouse right nearby that city. And the king said to those poor people, you can make any request of me that you want. The only condition is you need to be ready to receive it, that you need to be living in such a way that when my messengers come around with these packages, you are alert and ready to receive it. Well, there was a poor man who didn't ever receive anything. He had a hard time believing the king would do that, and so one day he was ushered to this storehouse, 
And there in a corner of the storehouse were innumerable packages, and they all had his name on it. That the king had heard his hope and had delivered the packages, but he had no expectation that the king would do that, and so they went unopened. And friends, I hope that in our life, we can live with a sense of expectation that what God has promised us, God will deliver on a daily basis through the power of the Holy Spirit, strength and hope and courage for the days ahead. Jesus says to Martha, do you believe this? Let me close with this brief story. In 1997, our family went to Scotland for the summer and we did what's called a pulpit exchange. Pastor Douglas and Christine and their kids flew to the U.S. and moved into our house in Downers Grove and drove our car and Douglas preached at our church and cared for our people. And we did the same thing. We went to this lovely village in Scotland called Kilmacolm and we drove his car, no I didn't crash, and um, preached in his congregation and cared for his people and just had a lovely summer. One of the things that happened during that summer was I was asked to go give communion to this elderly man by the name of John. And on the way over, I was uh, briefed by this elder what was going on. And she said, you know, John is in his 80s. He's had cancer for some time. But you need to know one thing that happened two days ago. And so she relayed to me that two days ago, the doctor had come into John's room where John lay on his bed, unable to get up. The doctor said, John, there's nothing more that we can do for you. Um, I'm just afraid that there's, there's nothing we can do. And so we're gonna keep you as comfortable as we can. We will care for you, uh, but your days are, are very much numbered. And John said, doctor, that's okay. Uh, I know him whom I've believed. I have confidence in his presence now and in heaven. And I know that he's gonna take me to be with him when I die. And the doctor who was sitting next to the bed put his hand on John's arm and said, well, John, I hope that when I get to be your age, or if I'm in that situation, that I have the same hope and confidence that you do. And in this almost last burst of energy, John grabbed the doctor by the upper arm and pulled him close to himself and said, why not now? Why wait? Why not now? And that's what Jesus is pressing Martha to as well. When he says, do you believe this? He's saying, let's get beyond the theological. Come to me personally. Do you believe this? And friends, I hope that we can step into that space in Martha's or in John's and say, yes, Lord, you are the Christ. You are the one whom God has sent as the salvation of the world. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have worked through centuries and thousands of miles and even through the cosmos to draw us to yourself. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to you that if we don't know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, that we will be able to, even this day, come to you as the resurrection and the life and say, yes, I believe. And for those of us who have known you for years, Lord, that you would renew our faith and enable us to serve you more faithfully. And Lord, I especially pray today for those who are beaten up and burdened and have a hard time seeing that reflection as in a mirror, that you, Lord, would put your arms around them, that you would hold them close, Remind them that for them, for their loved ones, you are the resurrection and the life. Thanks be to God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.